0: You're listening to a talk from the 8th Annual Smoke Farm Symposium, presented by KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Here, Smoke Farm's Brendan Kiley introduces writer and filmmaker Charles Mudede. Welcome back, everybody. People are trickling back now. It's time for our second speaker of the day, uh, Charles Mudede who is a Zimbabwean writer and a filmmaker. Uh, I actually worked with him for many years at The Stranger, uh, the weekly newspaper in Seattle, uh, or one of the weekly newspapers in Seattle. Uh, His films include Police Beat, which premiered at the Sundance Film Festival, and Zoo, which showed at Sundance and the Cannes Film Festival. Um, He's working on a new film uh, called Now I'm Fine. He's directing it, and it's based on a performance at On the Boards by Ahamefele J. Oluo uh, that was, I think, in the past year uh, premiered there. Um, and uh, he's a delightful person. <laughs> so uh, please welcome to the stage Charles Mudede. Hello,
1: everybody. I'll try to make this painless as possible. Um, uh, I I debated for a long time whether I should read something or I should just talk about what I was going to read (laughs) and uh, I I really hate reading to people Um, and so I'm going to do half and half is what it's going to be and um, uh, as I said I'm going to talk about a project that, that, that I've been working on since about 2010. And um, it's a project I call uh, uh, a theorizing of people or a group, groups of people that I call inhabitants. And the, uh, the, the journey into this subject um, began really with a bunch of informal um, talks that I held um, at a table at HIDMO and about five or seven people would show up and we'd talk about um, what I was reading at the time and how it might relate to fleshing out this, uh, this theory. So um, I wanted to sort of like give, sort of before I get started into it, I first wanna just give um, some thanks to people who have been really helpful uh, in my in this work which is and I could call it I could call it my my big my big project it's the one I think I'm going to die before I finish and it'll be found in a suitcase or something right and it'll be just in notes and everybody be bitching about how it's incomplete and you know what I mean and it I mean I have that already like fantasized right the hassle it'll cause scholars the sentence that ends in the middle i mean you know what i mean and stuff like that <laughs> you know and so i've already have this projection of a immense failure that will change the way people think forever or something like that but it has to be a really it has to be incomplete to be really good and so I've been working on this for so long. And, I, and as I said, anybody who has these long projects, it's the one thing you know you just as it, you try and try to finish. And you, sometimes you make ground. You, you, you get a rush and you finish some, some chapters and then you stop. And then you stop for a long time and then somebody knocks and reminds you that you have to get back on this. And those people who sort of reminded me to get back um, are Rich Jansen, weirdly strange enough, and Sociant uh, the magazine based in Berlin. Uh, Rich Jensen really w- pushed it. He, he, kept, he kept me going. He was there early at HIDMO, and he saw me sort of like scratching for ideas. And, uh, and the other person is uh, Brian Conwood, who has published actually two sections, actually you can call them chapters, from the project on Eflux. And you can go and read them. Um, one is called Neoliberalism and the New Afro-Pessimism. And the other one is called The Equalizer. And yes, it does refer to the TV show. And um, if, But it, I don't say that in the essay. But if you think that when you see, when you read The Equalizer, on, just say, just remember that television show, uh, don't, not the one with Danzel Washington when he ruined it, but the old one back in the 80s with the British actor. So... Um, uh, the equalizer, and they're both published, and you can read them, and they're sort of longish, and have lots of notes, and they, you can get sort of the gist. And the third one, I've been trying to finish for the past um, oh, goodness a month, um, and it's due for Eflux uh, a month ago, and um, and it will be hopefully to them in a month, and uh, it is, and and, I, and in fact that did, and and so um, and so Eflux is really thank, thank Brian writes me, and he's nice. And another person, Verso, took an interest in this project and then gave up because they just never saw a chapter of it. And um, so I'd like to thank the editor there who, <laughs> who who emailed me constantly and failed to get anything out of me. Um, and his name is Colin Beckett. Uh, he's a really nice guy. And I think he, he, he waited so long, he left Verso eventually. <laughs> but he still emails me about when I'm going to finish it. So I admire that tenacity. And, um, and so, uh, the, but the, what I'm going to present to you is basically the sketch of this work. It's just, it's rough and, and what, what, the, what, what it is, and sort of like giving you the background so that if you can actually see the two completed pieces and understand what, where, where, where it's coming from, if you wanted to read them. Now, um, there's, three, uh, uh, there's two people I want to really thank um, in my intellectual, or in my library, or my books library, anyway, uh, uh, for, for, for really making this move in my mind. And it's Stephen Jay Gould, the evolutionary uh, biologist, died in 2001, and, um, and Sarah Hardy, uh, I think the most important uh, evolutionary um, 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 sociobiologist uh, alive today. Um, her book, Mothers and Others, um, has, has had an enormous impact on me, and I refer to it constantly. In fact, uh, the fact that she has brought uh, feminism into evolutionary uh, um, studies, evolutionary anthropology, um, has, has redefined the entire picture of that field. So those are the two sort of leading intellectual lights here. And um, the, the three uh, directors who are who play a role, in the first two, you'll see the first um, is um, Mambeti, the Senegalese director who died sadly in, uh, in uh, um, 1998. Um, he had a film called Hyenas, which I recommend you watch. Um, it's one of the, I think it's the greatest African film ever made. Um, Betty's Senegalese, uh, the film was made in 1992. It is um, it's unsurpassed. Uh, it's based on um, a Swiss play um, called The Visit, which has been made into a film several times, but it is really African and profoundly so. So it's wonderful that a, a, one, I think the most African movie ever made is based on a play by a Swiss Playwright, right? (laughs) And this is the beauty of uh, the genius, I'd say, of um, Mbeti, uh, Diop Mbeti. And then the other one is um, Pirogue, or Pirogue, the boat, the Pirogue. And uh, what is it known as? Pirogue. It's Pirogue, it's a Pirogue. The uh, Pirogue, which is uh, 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 a fantastic film that came out in 2003. No, no, 2013. Uh, it, is, uh, it is by Torre, another Senegalese director. And this one is also um, in the efflux. This one is uh, the equalizer. This one is, is focuses on this particular film and its narrative. This one involves migrants crossing uh, the Mediterranean. They're black Africans crossing the Mediterranean in a rinky boat or uh, trying to get to uh, Europe, fortress, to get through fortress Europe. And um, there's something that happens on the way, and I get involved in what happens on the way. And so those, that's the second film. And the third one is District 9 by, uh, I should say, almost a countryman. He's South African, or country person. I shouldn't be so British. Um, 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 uh, Neil, um, um, I think, Boonkamp. Uh, my Afrikaans is never good, but I think it's Bonkamp. Um and he directed uh, District Nine, and that's the third version that I'm sort of late to turn over f- for Eflux. And again, if you remember, everybody remembers um, District Nine, uh, the movie is about a set of aliens who appear over Johannesburg, and uh, they are uh, desperate, they're, they're hungry, and they end up um, in a, uh, they end up staying in a, uh, a sort of a. a, a uh, uh, isolated in a, in a neighborhood, a camp um, called District 9 that looks a lot like Soweto in the apartheid era, but the aliens look a lot like Zimbabweans who have fled across the border into South Africa looking for work. And uh, so depending on who you are, I think if you're South African, you see, ah, that's what we were treated like under white oppression. And if you see, uh, if you're Zimbabwean, you see, ah, those aliens are us. (laughs) You know, that's uh, because right now um, Zimbabwe went through an economic collapse in 2001. And and then everybody became pretty much an economic refugee. Um, If if you're young, you got out of the country, and there were two countries you went to first, or tried to get to first, South Africa, and then England. And if you were lucky, you went either to Australia or the USA. And um, it's to the tune of like 4 million uh, Zimbabweans are now out of the country, and this is a country of 11 million people. So this demographic impact is going to change the future of this country, and certainly so. Anyway, a lot of the Zimbabweans left uh, Zimbabwe, uh, left the country in 19, around 2001, 2000, and moved to South Africa. And if you remember, there was a lot of xenophobic violence towards these Zimbabweans um, around 2008, and again there was another outbreak in 2011, and it was black Africans in South Africa, uh, burning um, Zimbabwean businesses, attacking Zimbabweans. I don't know how they noticed them, but they did. Um, I mean, uh, <laughs> I know how they noticed them. I'm joking. That was an inside joke. I, I, I can tell a South African from a Zimbabwean. I mean, I, I can, and I don't mean that in a racist way. I mean, I mean, I mean that in an honest way. Anyway, the 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 Zimbabweans were attacked, and then and if you watch the movie District Nine. That's what happens, right? They're in a, they're, they're isolated. They uh, have an economy, and they're attacked often by drunkards. And uh, often they are black Africans, although there is a white uh, resentment as well about their um, about their arrival and their consumption of resources and this sort of thing. So District Nine plays the third part. And again, so that's the that's the first part. Okay, second point. <laughs> All right. See see why this will never be done. Um, The second part, why did I come with the name Inhabitants? Well, Inhabitants actually was a mistake. It was an accident. Sometimes I get tired and I decide to clean my apartment. and um, Or tired of life, I should say. And I I blame everything around me, so I start to clean. And um, I was cleaning and I wanted to listen to some music. And then I decided, no, I'd like to... And I went to Lyme, and Lyme is a place you can go back in the days. You can go and get illegal music and download it. And then I just decided, what if I just listen to the poetry of Baudelaire? What if there's Baudelaire on Lyme? And so I typed in Baudelaire, and sure enough, something popped up. And it wasn't the poetry of Baudelaire, it was actually a lecture delivered by a guy um, called Arnold Weinstein. And uh, he was a professor, and he had an essay, uh, a collection of essays called the soul and the city. And in this collection was um, uh, uh, an essay, uh, a lecture which he delivered um, about Baudelaire's poem, The Swan. And I love this particular essay, this particular lecture. Um, And in it, he was talking about the Hosmanization of Paris and how that uh, transformed not just Paris, um, but also re- dis- dislocated people. Um, I went back and read The Swan very carefully because of this lecture, because in a way, it's the first poem uh, dedicated to gentrification. It's the first gentrification poem in the history of the universe. We can actually say that Les Singes, right? The Swan is, is the poem about uh, the, 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 the redevelopment of uh, Paris and the displacement of people, and um, and this is a poem about this displacement, and the swan is a figure of displacement, the exile, an exile in their own world. Anyway, in this essay, and I could not. I was so sad he didn't have a book. I really wished he had written a book, but he hadn't. But what he said instead was, he said this displacement um, transformed people who were accustomed to their neighborhoods, uh, to their small part of the city. It transformed them from citizen, citoyen into inhabitants, right? Inhabitants, right? And I loved this, right? The displacement made them suddenly strangers in their own world, right? And that's what I liked about inhabitants. The, that the idea was that, and I kept with it, and I said, oh, shoot, this is it, Because what does it mean to be in a place where you have no, right? You're not a citizen. And most of us are not just living in places that we are citizens, we're no longer citizens, but we're also living in places where um, uh, more and more we're losing our citizenship and becoming inhabitants, right? So that was sort of like the background for that. That was where I came with the title of habitants. And then the second thing that sort of of, uh, happened to me was um, a lecture that was delivered in 2012. I found this on the web. And it was a lecture delivered by Andreas uh, Calvayas. Cal-ca- Calvayas, Andreas Calvayas. And uh, he was, um, he's a political philosopher, and uh, he's based in Columbia University, and he was delivering this lecture at London School of Economics, and it was on statelessness, and um, the, ca- the characteristics, the features of statelessness with migrants. And he was trying to, give a political picture as to what that means. What does it mean not to have a country and to be in a country and to demand your rights? That was his central question. What does it mean when you are, say, an illegal uh, person without papers, and papers, in, in Paris, but you go and march? Right? And why he was asking this question is because people like Hannah Arendt, uh, political philosophers like Hannah Arendt and Philosophers like Agamben were sort of like had theories of statelessness, and they and they thought that basically, if um, if you don't have a state, you don't have a politics, you're denied political agency. Right, and so she was trying to theorize this thing where she was she would be like, um, well, no, no, Andreas um, um, uh, Kalevas was trying to theorize a the thing, saying that. Well, how is it possible that, you know, people who are illegal or undocumented still, you know, protest? Sit-ins, marches, and at times, you could say, are more political than those who are citizens sometimes. Citizens, a lot of citizens don't go and vote or nothing, don't go and protest. They sit at home watching football all day, right? So these people are political because they have rights, yeah? Yeah. And these other people who are fighting to work and so forth and so on, but don't have uh, a state uh, to represent them, are apolitical or have no politics, right? That's bizarre. So the question is, where is their politics? That's the big question he asked. Where is their politics coming from? And he had a theory. He thought it was a cosmopolitan. He had three, but I wanna, there's one that caught my eye. He had three reasons. One is The third one, and which, I'm gonna, I, I, which moved me along in my thinking, was that statelessness... Uh, the, 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 the leads to a politics that you, where you demand um, universal human rights, right? That's the thing. You demand rights not as a citizen but as a human being. And that is curious to me, right? I really wanted to know. Once he made this out clear, I, mean, remember, I remember when I, I was listening to this when I was walking down the street, I jumped in joy. Like, that's what I was looking for. Where do, where do these rights come from? If you're a human being, right? Now you have to remember, there's a lot of poetry that goes into all this talk about human rights, right? We act, let's, even when we're secular, we still act as if the, some Moses came down and gave it to us, right? They're universal. They ring through the universe. Ice in distant parts of the solar system understand human rights, right? I mean, this is how we talk about it. It's transcendental. We can't move them. They're facts. I have a problem with this because I'm not religious. I don't believe that human rights um, will exist on this new planet that we're talking about this weekend, you know, the one uh, that's Earth-like and in the nearest nearest, um, Proximus Nine or something like that. Um, um, and, And so I just believe, no, human rights are very much about human beings and about their evolutionary development, this has to be the case. So I said, uh, "This is my step from him." Um, outside of the universal, the claim that we're, they are claiming their rights as human beings, but where do these rights come from? They don't come from the mountain and from a flash of lightning or whatever. They come from the body, right? The body, uh, the human body as it is. And so um, that presented a really um, a really big question again. Another, my next big question: Well, how in the world does the body? What is it about human beings that makes you know that 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 that, that grounds or authorizes rights? What is it about the body itself? What is it about our sociality that makes it? You know, because I have to understand this. I have to I have to understand human rights in the way that a beaver understands a tree. You know, you know what I mean? He knows that that he knows what he's doing, right? And it's in him, it's in her that tree is going to get. Chopped down and put into the dam, right? I have to understand human rights like this, no airy stuff, right? It has to be grounded in our kind of biological processes, the kind of biology that we call our own as human beings. So, okay, so I got ten minutes, and so we're nowhere near. was just this is good, this is working out really well, so, so, so I'll just, I would just I'm going to get to Stephen Jay Gould, and then, um, and then, and then, and then, because I'll, because I'll, then I'll just do a quick thing about, about the biology, and you can read the other two, but you will be able to understand the other two after hearing all of this stuff, because, so, the, uh, the, the, the biology, and I want to understand it through these processes, our interactions, right, what made us human, what made us so social, right, and why do we? Uh, and and, and, and what, what what do these rights mean? Essentially, what do they? What does it mean that I demand my right to have uh, to be right, to be a human being, to have food, to have shelter, all these things, and cultural things too? Like Adam Smith reminds us, cultural things are a part of human rights. Right, wearing shoes. Right, if a society wears shoes, you have to wear shoes too. Right, that sort of thing. So what? Make, what? Why do you make these demands? So this was with the big question. So, I, um, I, I, I then had to turn to um, social biology because sociobiology biology was interesting. It started in the 70s, E.O. Wilson, R- Richard Dawkins, were sort of the leading thinkers at the start of it, and I sort of read that literature, and it was really un, You, it was really unhelpful. I didn't like it at all. Um, it, was too, it was too focused on genes, and there was this notion that somehow genes were, like, going to answer everything, right? Why are you stupid? Ah, oh, it's in the genes. Why do you want to get married? Ah, oh, it's in the genes. Why are you attracted to that man? Ah, oh, it's in the genes, right? And it went on and on like this, and it just seemed like this did not look like the way society worked. First of all, there's lots of stuff that we do which doesn't seem to at all to have any value genetically, at least directly, right? Or something of that kind, and so forth and so on. And it sounded very male, and it sounded very white, and it sounded very European, right? And it's just, you just feel that, right? You're you waiting for it. Well, why, are, why do black students perform badly in school? Of course, that was inevitable. Oh, it's in the genes, right? It's, it's, blacks just don't have it. You know, and so forth and so on. I mean, let's not let's forget about four hundred you know years of uh, slavery there, and uh, and talk about the genes. You know, and uh, that was the kind of thing that sort of happened. So I and so um, I left that. I just couldn't. I was trying to find a biological answer. Social biology seemed to um, not be leading to the answer. But there are two things that sort of broke that, and I'm gonna sort of end there. Two things that sort of got me out of, of, returned me to sociobiology, because I still wanted a biological answer, but uh, through a different thing. One is epigenetics. I'm not gonna go into that, but the first is epigenetics. And that reconfigured... That's, that's changing the way everybody's thinking about what's going on with human beings and their environment. And it seems that environmental factors do act much faster on genetic material than we thought, so, than we thought before. So there's that thing as well. And then the other one was um, reading Stephen Jay Gould and, um, and eventually reading um, Hardy, uh, the, the sociobiologist. Stephen Jay Gould is, of course, opposed to a lot of the sociobiology, which later on became um, evolutionary psychology, if anybody studies evolutionary psychology, you're really watching the the, the, the 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 daughter of the of the of the of the of, the, of, the, of sociobiology, right? And uh, but um, when uh when um uh, uh when sociobiology when when, when I the, what are the critics of this branch, the critics of sociobiology and and, uh, and, um, and, and, and evolutionary psychology was, was, was Stephen Jay Gould. And they sort totally of did it primarily through understanding eventually what we now know as epigenetics. I mean, that's what they just... That's, he figured that's going to happen, and it did happen. But um, he gave a speech in South Africa that I caught, and I'm going to read that as to, to conclude. He gave a speech in South Africa... That really broke the mold for me. This is where finally I, I I got the room I needed, and I knew and I could suddenly go uh, into different areas and 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 think about the problem in a really fresh way it 's almost you read something and it 's like, "Oh wow, right? You know you just it 's clear to you. You know, and you you, you remember it's one of those things where you wait for the next day because the next day you'll read it and say, what what, what the hell was that about? This is garbage, right? And then you just know of no use to you. But this was one of those things that stuck, and it stuck the whole time. He delivered a lecture, weirdly enough, in South Africa in 1984 in Pretoria, the capital of South Africa. And he was asking, and and it's a really strange title. He said, human equality, and human equality is where we, I found to be eventually where we get our sense of rights is through human equality. And if you, just a quick thing, if you look at human equality, the quest, next question is where does the sense of equality come from? Well, then you have to go and look earlier at groups, and then you hit the ground, and it's human, or the, our, kind of sociali- so, our kind of sociality developed from egalitarian societies, essentially. So from egalitarianism, you have a strong sense of equality. From equality, you have a strong sense of your rights as a human being. And then you have to ask the question, Is where did egalitarian, why egalitarian? I'm not going to get into that, but I do eventually. But that's the, those are the steps. So the problem, so here the word is human equality, is contingent, is a contingent fact of history. That's the, that's the essay he delivered, the lecture he delivered in South Africa. Human equality is a contingent fact of history, which I loved. First of all, it got us out of that, right? Moses coming from the hills with the laws, right? Because he's saying, essentially, it's contingent, right? What does he mean by contingent? Why are, why are human rights contingent? And he says simply, humans, as we understand them, genetically are just the same and pretty close and, and pretty recent occurrence in history. We haven't been around long enough to hate each other so much, right? To, 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 to justify our hate for each other right? We've had to manufacture this. The fact is, we're just the same family and this is contingent. It's nothing, it's nothing like a surprise. It's nothing like you know, supernatural. It's just that given the time and given separation, yeah, we could have had different groups of human beings, but we don't. What happened is we spread very quickly and, uh, and we found uh, ourselves in different parts of the world, but we're essentially the same animal, you know, and so the human equality is just the accident of that speed of our development. Right and nothing more. So we make claims on other human beings because they are literally our relatives, right? That's what he's arguing, and I'll I'll read the whole thing. Uh, just a passage, and I'll close with that. So he says, yeah, I have called e- uh, equality among races as contingent as a contingent fact. So how far, so far, I have only argued for that for the for the fact. What about the contingency? In other words, how might history have been different?" Most of us can grasp and accept the quality. Few have considered the easy plausibility of alternatives that didn't happen. Homo sapiens uh, is a young species. Its divisions into races even more recent. Brilliant point. This historical context has not supplied enough time for the evolution of substantial differences. But many species are millions of years old, and their geographic divisions are often marked and deep. Homo sapiens might have evolved along such a time scale and produced races of great age and large accumulated differences, but we didn't. Human equality is a contingent fact of history. That's brilliant, right? Very clear. And so that was the ground i am I'm gonna do one more, read one more thing before I go because I just have to. I'm sorry, it's gonna be. I have to do this. Um, it's uh, it's uh, it's, Sarah, it's Sarah Hardy, and it, it's just it, could, it just just match this with what I said, and and, and you get the, sort of the picture. But Sarah Hardy puts this in her, in mother of her. This is the end of the book, by the way. This is the very end of the. This sort of goes into the. This is where it's heading towards to, because it's a pessimistic book. It's deeply pessimistic, right? At the end of the day. We uh, wish I could go into Afro f- uh, pessimism, but this is a pe- there's a pessimism that runs side by side all of this thinking. Right, and so um, the the ultimate for me, pessimistic, Afro-pessimistic statement, um, is made by Sarah Harding, who's at, uh, who teaches uh, in California, and and as an anthropologist said earlier on. But here's the thing that she brings out, which is so lovely, at, in her book Mothers and Others. Viewed from the perspective of some evolutionary theorist, surveying twenty thousand years, hence serving, surveying humans twenty thousand hence, are powerful Impulses to empathize with others, to give, share, and seek uh, um, uh, uh, recuperation might seem like nothing more than a transient phase in the ongoing evolution of the species. Brilliant. Although there is a widely held uh, assumption um, that evolutionary processes are irreversible, eternal, don't count on it. Right? Dolo's law is more near a description of the deep history of some organisms than a universally applicable natural law like gravity. Far more basic and universal tenet of evolutionary biology states that the removal of an agent of selection can sometimes bring about rapid evolutionary consequences. Everybody, if you heard that, think of capitalism. Just keep that in your mind. That'll scare you to death. Um, To all the reasons people might have to worry about the future of our species, including the usual depressing litany of nuclear proliferation, global warming, emerging infectious diseases, or crashing meteorites, the best of all, Um, add one more having to do with what sort of species our descendants, uh, millennia hence, might uh, belong. If empathy and understanding develop only under particular rearing conditions, so crucial, And if an ever-increasing portion of the species fails to encounter those conditions, think capitalism, but nevertheless, or neoliberalism, but nevertheless survives to reproduce, it won't matter how valuable the underpinnings were in the past. Compassion and the quest for emotional connection will fade away as surely as sight in the cave-dwelling fish. That's for real, right? Can you feel that? Yeah. So now I love this intercourse between biology and politics and human culture, and this is what I sort of am navigating in this thing. So, if there any questions, it's off to the floor. Um, That's it. That's the best I can do for now. (laughs) And if you have no questions, don't mind. I don't care. (laughs) I'm not as democratic as you think. Questions?
0: okay it 's not fully formed yet, but just from that last quote, um, wondering um, from what I understand it 's saying these things, compassion, being a human being are not do not transfer with each cycle of evolution they can be lost as uh, things are lost as all creatures evolve yeah. in our evolution is she does she go on to suggest any kind of um, Practice for not devolving. <laughs> yeah, that's just,
1: weird enough, it's the it's her most it's her most Delphic statement in the book. I have to be honest about that, right? And um, because she, she's hinting at something um, really um, unexpected, really dark, right? So what she's saying, you're right, is that is that evolutionary. What I like is that it says that these feelings that we think are universal. Kindness, compassion—all these things, particularly um, um, with human beings, right—they're uh, necessary because we evolved um, in a way that emphasised these. These, you know, dogs have compassion. I mean, lots of animals. I mean, one thing I love is that we're not excluding other animals, but we we may have intensified these kinds of characteristics because they were necessary for our survival, right? And under conditions where those characteristics right were beneficial they were enhanced right but if you change the environment they just and we don't you know there's no real reason why they should be sticking around you know why not just throw people in prison right and not think about them remove them from our sight why not us compete constantly for our jobs and all these things that becomes an environment and sooner or later the biology she's threatening will catch up we're not outside of Darwin, right? We're in evolution, right? And if the environment that we create is one where you, only a few succeed, and uh, the rest are forgotten, that is not, the, that is not the, the environment in which humans, as we are now, evolved in. And so you remove those conditions, and you create these new, and though they're cultural for the most part, but they feel natural to the genes, the idea is that they will adapt. Now, people think that it's going to be a matter... This is where epigenetics comes in for me. People think that it's a matter of, um, of, uh, of a transmission uh, vertical through... you know, linear transmission through time. But actually, there's more and more inv- evidence that epigenetics' um, response to environmental change is much faster than we had anticipated. And it's not that you change your genes, you change how you play your genes. And that could have effects, as they found out, throughout generations, right? And so you actually can create another kind of human being, another species of human being. The species, I might say, we might call this uh, the species, um, I'm trying to think of a a good name for this species, gecko, the gecko species, as in the Wall Street guy. The Wall Street gecko in Wall Street, right? Greed is good, right? That guy. That's who we all become, And we can become that, right? Because in a way, and the one thing I do stress in my um, essay, particularly in the first essay that I I published on EFLUX, what I really stress is that strength did not make, strong people didn't make strong societies. That doesn't work. That's a contradiction, right? Because um, what you need is a society that is with a lot of weak people, if you have a lot of weak people, you're most likely going to have a strong society. If you have a bunch of strong individuals, if you look at it logically, you're probably going to have a weaker society. If it's just, it works. And people have to, you have to sort of counter intuitive. But if you look at the myths, we're always like the strong person or the strong man, everybody clumped around them, right? So there's this movie called The Time of the Wolf. And basically, if you watch it, it's a science fiction film made in 2004. Um, if you watch it, basically the the, the, the males become gorillas, essentially, and, um, and have harems and children and, you know, small people around them. I mean, fine, yeah, gorillas do do that kind of thing, right? But that's not exactly human, right? And that's the thing, right? And so what do humans do? Well, humans tend to be weak. They're not strong. A chimpanzee can throw us around with no difficulty, right? We don't, we're just weak. And under this weakness is the surprising strength that we had and the source of our sociality we needed to bind and we needed to work together and so we needed these virtues what we call compassion equality and so forth and so on to function if you shift that then you can shift the, the possibilities for the future for this particular animal that yes
0: I'm wondering what you think it was in our short evolutionary uh, past that led to us being the only species we know of who actually observes our own evolution and now it sounds like are trying to determine it as well.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, a beaver kind of changed its own genetics. It didn't know it, maybe, but it did do that. I mean, it, it was clearly a rodent that became aquatic through its, you know, its insistence on building dams. (laughs) <laughs> but essentially it changed itself, right? And in fact, I would say that we changed ourselves before we knew we were changing ourselves, right? So in a sense, uh, we are moral not because of something. We are moral because we shaped our genetic, our genetic material to emphasize morality. We're not, it's, not, it's not something that just came out of nowhere. It's something that we emphasized and became a part of us. Right through uh, pressures and so forth and so on. So um, the fact that we now... I'm going to end on this note. The fact that we now are aware of this, well, I have an answer for this, and it comes from my favorite Sarah Hardy. Hardy's a great thinker. You see, she noticed that humans are... Um, are uh, she focuses on, on children, On on babies. And she thinks that our sociality comes from the very uselessness of our babies, right? Our babies take too long, do nothing for too long, and demand. More than just a parent, they demand literally a village. I mean, they demand a whole family. She calls them aloe parents, right? There's no other animal. You could, there's no, A chimpanzee couldn't have a preschool, right? They'd come, they'd come to the preschool and all their kids are beaten up and bloody, right? Or eaten or something like that. And it's not true. That's what happens, right? The mothers and chimpanzees are very defensive with their children, right? They don't share them, they would lose them but we can actually leave them at daycare centers, and that's the kind of animal we are. We couldn't handle taking care of a baby on our own. It's too much. They're too useless, right? (laughs) And for too long. Everybody knows this. That's the kind of children we have. And she thinks that this is actually the foundation of our sociality, that we were forced because of the brain size and all these other debil- you know, the dis- disabilities that turn out to be useful in the end, but with clearly disabilities at the start, a, a, a baby with a big brain is a disability. You know what I mean? I mean, it's not, people like thinking it's like, it's like a great thing, but babies, what do they do? I mean, they don't do that much at all with that big brain. It's a disability, right? If you look at a young chimpanzee, they're off and running at a very, at a very early age. So... That's all of that. What happened is, if we look at the, 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 what happened is, because we spend so much time as children forever, and what do children do? They ask questions with no end, right? We essentially just never grew up, right? So humans are sort of big babies. There's a whole field of this called, uh, uh, called neoteny. We're just huge babies because you should not be asking questions all your life right? Like a gorilla stops asking questions at a certain point and becomes a gorilla, right? But we just go on and on and on and finally you say, what are genes? What are the stars? And it's just like these are babies' questions and suddenly, but, but the most stupidest questions of all, the most useless questions became the dynamite of, us, of our kind of animal. Who knew? Being stupid for so long resulted in our intelligence. <laughs> Thank you.